cliffcentral.com. If you're at all like me, and probably you're not, and that's maybe a good thing, you will know a little bit about what happened in Rwanda uh, all those years ago, some 15 years or more ago, um, where, you know, the most horrible story of genocide in recent African history took place and where just the most atrocious and nasty and maniacal, horrible things happened right under our noses in an era and an age where we were supposedly uh, surrounded by cameras and the media was everywhere and the world had become a peaceful place and this sort of thing was meant to have been banished along with all the fascists at the end of World War II. And yet, um, there are still stories emerging from that period of time in Central Africa where so many people's lives were either ended in the most brutal fashion or upended in an equally traumatic and visceral way. There isn't a better person to my mind to describe what happened and by describe it through his own experience of it than our guest, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show today, uh, P. Pacifique. Uh, it is a great pleasure to see you, P. Pacifique. Kabalira Uwase, who is a Rwandan. He's living in KZN at the moment, but when he was 14 year old, years old, he went through all of this. And um, I have to tell you, your book is immersive and very difficult to read because, you, you know, we, te we tend to live in the year 2022 with uh, more than an arm's length distance between us and the kinds of events you describe in this book. And it was quite jarring and galling for me to come to terms with the fact that this is not just something that which happened here on our own continent. It's not just something which happened in living memory, uh, but, but it is something that happened to a great many people who are still alive and bearing those scars. And, and among them, you and members of your own family. So thank you for writing the book, because if it weren't for books like yours and it weren't for brave people like you who are willing to tell these stories, which some say would be better left in the past, uh, we would, we would be, I think too quick to commit them again. So first and foremost, I have to say just well done. And, and I commend you on writing an extraordinarily hard book to read, but a beautifully written book and a book that just feels like you're in the middle of it while it's all happening. Oh, thank you, Gareth. Thank you for inviting me uh, first. And uh, yeah. as you say, it's uh, for a long time, I actually uh, resisted uh, engaging with the memories. I really wanted to forget it all and move forward, uh, partly because it was difficult to relieve those. Uh, uh, I, was, I was a child. Uh, I, was, I was 13 when that happened. Yes, um, but also partly because as I grew up, I started believing that it's not a story worth telling and that people will judge me uh, for being damaged because I certainly believed that there's no way I could have witnessed that as a child and be normal. And so for a long time, I actually really resisted writing um, until I, um, I was encouraged uh, through a number of processes and events and encounters I had with various people who actually listened to me. Now, without any promise of doing anything about it or anything else than just listening without judging me. And the more I listened to myself, the more I realized that actually it's 
it's okay that I was there and it's okay for me to tell this story. Uh, and it happened in stages. And as you say, it's, it's despicable that uh, these are actually things that not just happened then, but there, there are parts of the world where this is still happening. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I say it's the most recent genocide, but there are stories <clears throat> coming out of, out of China, you know, especially the West of China where the Uyghur population lives now. Mm-hmm. There are stories coming out of South Sudan. Um, there, there are, there are situations and, and places. I mean, even in Iraq, you know, we had the Kurds not so long ago being decimated by Saddam Hussein. And then, and then more people in Iraq post that also falling victim to these authoritarian regimes and very often ordinary society around them who are once friends and become foes overnight. You know, um, it's, it's, it's really hard for most of us to put ourselves in a position where we may have to tell a story that's this hard to tell about it. You know, it's become very on vogue for everyone in modern society, especially in the West, to share their own hard luck story. Oh, you know, I grew up poor or, oh, I didn't get the chances that other people got or I'm underprivileged and that guy's privileged or that woman has more than I have. But when you compare them to this, and your book is called Witnessing, by the way, mm-hmm. you you could have called it participating, not as the aggressor here, but as a victim. You were absolutely a young child. There was nothing you could do. You must have dug very deep to eventually find the strength to put this down in writing and to know that you weren't going to be judged, well, or to hope that you wouldn't be judged, uh, and, and to be willing to share something which uh, opens up the scars, huh? Mm. It does, but uh, one, of the, one of the things I discovered in my process of healing is that uh, the, the very healing actually necessitated that opening of the wound. Uh, um, and, and, and so this process uh, was at times really painful. Uh, I'm, I'm sure those, those who will uh, have a chance to read the book, I, I recount at least one of those instances where I was held uh, by, by a room full of people just processing one of the memories um, because that's what it took. It took a lot of sometimes tears and, and, uh, and screaming. Um, but on the other side of it, in the, other, in the other side of it, there is complete peace. And I mean, you, you said I would write this and hope not to be judged. It simply is that um, I, I'm no longer that affected by judgment as I was before. Right? Because I cannot control how people are going to react or respond. Um, but what I can control is my intention. What, what I want. And if this has taken me time, some of it was devoted to refining my why. Why am I telling this story? Yes. And this is how I go to the, the witnessing part. Because the more I processed, the more I realized, even though I was there, I actually never allowed myself to be a witness. As in, intentionally really acknowledged that I saw that happening. And, and so uh, 
as as you, I mean, you used a beautiful word, participating. Um, I don't think that witnessing is just a, the, the fact of being there. I think witnessing is an act, uh, and it, and you can go beyond just being there and open your heart to what is happening. And it's when I was doing that that I actually discovered what could be in it for me too as I grow up. And so I, I then decided to invite everyone else to do the same. I'm inviting you to witness. And so that's where the witnessing came from. Well, let's just go back. And again, as I said to you when we started the discussion, I don't want to give away the reasons that people should read this book and experience it themselves because mm. that, that will be their own powerful takeaway from you know, the, 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 the ample lessons you, you give us all in humanity and, and also on, on how quickly things can change. But if we go back to the very beginning, just describe your family and your life before all the chaotic events of the actual genocide. And tell us especially about your mother. You dedicated a chapter to her, which I thought was very beautiful. Yeah. Well, it was... An, <laughs> I, uh, I actually had a long part, which uh, the, the first uh, part was entitled An Ordinary Boy in an Ordinary Neighborhood of Kigali. Right? It was too long, of course, but that's, you know, sure. we had said An Ordinary Boy because it was an ordinary life. I grew up playing in the streets with other children. All the parents in the neighborhoods were, were all the parents in the neighborhood were my parents, right? So when something was wrong, all the parents had the right to punish you. It was, uh, uh, but, but then at some point, my, my father appeared. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, we, we took time to get to know him. Uh, later, I would learn, of course, that he was in prison. Uh, accused of uh, uh, various uh, state security related crimes um, and then eventually he was released and so uh, my mother uh, when my father died I was nine nine actually was just a few months before I turned nine yeah. my mother decided it was three of us decided not to um, to marry again and so we grew up uh, knowing that there is mother and, and, and father is no longer and so my my biggest <laughs> complaint in life was that my father died before I came first in class because he had promised me a bicycle and by the time I came first in class uh, he, he was dead. That was my biggest <laughs> complaint in life, right? because the bicycle was a symbol of of, um, of 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 wealth and ease in life. But also, it's something I envied other boys who had bicycles uh, for. Um, so I finished primary school. But by the time I finished primary school, the war that culminated into the genocide had started. So Rwanda was invaded by the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which was a rebel group. At the time, of course, I didn't know what all that meant. Um, and uh, this is something that I was actually telling um, people at one, uh, one of the book launches. is uh, In the late 80s and early 90s, there was this Hollywood, uh, Hollywood uh, bunch of movies that uh, had war in them. 
and there was Commando and 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 Rambo and mm. so the idea of war was from a boy, thirteen-year-old boy watching these movies. I wondered, is it like that? Right? So I had this curiosity to. Is it like that? Is, is the bombs, do they sound like that? The, the, the guns, do they sound like that? But it was still so far away until, of course, there were internally displaced people. We got uh, cousins coming, living with us. Uh, some of them injured. Then war becomes real. Um, but that meant that our house it was not just you know, my siblings and my mother. She somehow found a way to welcome some of my cousins. So my our house was always full because of the internally displaced uh, um, I was on holidays when when um, when uh, the the, the uh, genocide started. Well let's just uh, stop there for a second. Sorry, I just want to stop there for a second because on in your, in your seventh chapter of the book, you actually say, on the evening of Wednesday, April 6th, 1994, uh, here in South Africa, we were getting ready for our first ever elections. And this, this in yeah. some ways, overshadowed the story in Rwanda so much for us that we, we kind of looked at it from an even further vantage point than we might have. But you say Radio yeah, Rwanda yeah. abruptly stopped its normal programming and played classical music, usually broadcast only when there was national mourning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said here... Curiously, we switched channels to RTLM and were shocked by the announcement that the plane carrying the president had been shot down as it prepared to land at Kigali. President Habiar uh, Rumana was returning from Dar es Salaam where he had been engaged in finalizing preparations for the implementation of the peace accords. And you said, I went to bed knowing something big had happened, but it was not clear yet what. Um, I mean, if there's ever a setup for something big, you know, and, and again, as a young child, you, you, these are the kinds of memories that are etched into your mind forever. What were, what, what were the next things that started to happen in the mind of this 13, 14-year-old as he started to realize what was actually going on? Yeah. So remember now we are in a country where on that day where there was hope. Like uh, we, we're thinking the, the Arusha Accords, mm. the people... Are, are, are coming to be part of the transition government. And so there was ceasefire. Uh, and sometimes on television, you would see the warring parties, you know, the government and the RPF uh, officials m- mingling. Uh, so, so there was absolutely no sense that there was something that was going to happen um, that was going to derail that, at least... Uh, for me, I think also part of my perspective was uh, influenced by the fact that my family was in anticipation of what it would mean when one of the leaders of the RPF is part of the government because he was, uh, he was uh, my, my, uh, uh, my father's friend and, and he was actually the chairman of that particular group. And, and so... I, as a boy, allowed myself to be excited about that, whatever that mm. means. Uh, and so it, it is uh, as, as, as close as seeing somebody you, you think will, will recognize your family on television. So it was exciting. And then, and then <laughs> so suddenly, of course, uh, 
the, the the presidential plan was shot, and and this in at the time in the country, if uh, if you uh, how how can I say it? There was a belief that he's indestructible, you know, like uh, like because of how the, the the media profiled him. So he was this impossible to defeat, impossible to distract kind of persona, and so right. hearing that. Uh, the presidential plan had been shot. Uh, it, it still didn't sink in that he might die or that he died, the president. Right? So mm. in the morning, the first sounds I heard were uh, my, my mother having this conversation with a neighbor friend who actually would ordinarily not be there at home at that early hour of the morning. And that, that's the first abnormal thing I noticed. Is it's, yeah. Yeah. And so they're having this conversation, and it's about the death of the president and what it might mean. Um, and so that's when I, I, I knew, even at 13, that we woke up in a completely different country. Um, and how long, how long after that did the gunshots start? Oh, the same day, the same day, but they were distant. Uh, they were distant. Uh, and uh, then we, we had a, we had somebody who lived at home. He was a policeman, but ex-army. And so he was still very well connected in the army. He was armed. And so he, he went out and came back. And, and every time he came back during that day, he told us what he had seen. And, and then he took it upon himself to go and bring my younger brother who had spent the night in a, in a different part of town. Um, and, uh, and, and when my brother came in, he also had the same story. It is war. There's no cars in the streets. That's the first thing. There's roadblocks everywhere. And then there's these sporadic uh, gunshots that you can hear. And so the whole city is different. And, and so, but we are still in the confines of home, what we experience, yes. what we are hearing until the evening when they came for us. Now, um, for a refresher, for those people who don't read the history books and perhaps only know a little bit about this genocide and, and the war, um, you, you might want to explain Hutu and Tutsi and what you are and where that all ended up going, because that was probably one of the most readily available bits of information for those of us outside of Rwanda who were give, given, you know, piecemeal stories until we could obviously figure out more what was going on. Mm. So the, the belief is, is, is that the Rwanda was, uh, uh, the Rwandan society was made of three ethnic groups. There's the Hutus and the Tutsis and then the Twas. Now, of course, because this is this happens with politics, right? depending on who is telling the story or who is telling history, right? yes. depending on who is telling the story the loudest, history changes. Right? And so I can tell you, for example, that before 1994, what I learned was in history books that uh, Twas, it's another group, the, the Twas were indigenous, like here you have, you have the the Bushmen, they, they were also the indigenous population of Rwanda. And that Hutus then uh, moved in, they were uh, uh, more land 
uh, workers. So they, 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 they land farmers and they were looking for more fertile land. And then yes. Tutsis, they move in, they were herders. They had cows and they, they were nomadic. And then they, so all three met in that part and they, they stayed together. And somehow over time, a hierarchy emerged. And so the, the, there was a king, uh, but the king could only be a Tutsi and uh, come from the Tutsis. And, 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 and so now this is where things uh, change, the, the versions of the history change. Uh, yes. So if you ask some people in Rwanda, uh, uh, they will say, no, 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 no. Uh, the Tutsis then oppressed and the king, and the king and Tutsis, oppressed Hutus and they made them slaves. And, and Hutus were slaves of Tutsis and, and over, over during that time of the kingdom. Hmm. Then you speak to others, they will say, no, 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 it was not uh, slavery, it was uh, the, the way society organized itself and it was accepted cultural norms and for economic uh, uh, purposes, that's how the society operated. And they shy away from calling it slavery. Right. Now, depending on who that uh, uh, um, serves, uh, the, the, the Hutus were slaves of Tutsis, or they were not. This is depending on who it, it and it depends my heart as a Rwandan to be, to be speaking here, not having a, a, a one version of history that all us Rwandans we agree on. Because what then happens, uh, when in 1962 and there was independence, um, uh, Hutus were the ones who were, who had now taken, uh, power chased the king out yeah. and a lot of Tutsis also went into exile. And it's 30 years later, some of those Tutsis who grew up in exile, who took up arms and wanted to come by force uh, in the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Right? Yeah. Now, what was said at the time, certainly before 1994, is that it was sang, it was said, so many... Uh, times in so many ways, that what they are bringing back is the slavery and all of that. Right? So Hutus being assumed to be the majority of the country, the majority, the ethnic group that is the majority, they then were called to rally uh, against the return of uh, the, the Tutsis on top because what that means is slavery is coming back, etc., 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 so, so that's, that's the, and then, and of course, what, what did this mean for you? Because had you considered your own kind of tribal identity very much before that? Had you really thought about this much as a child? You know, when you went to primary school, was it something that you thought about your fellow schoolmates or, or was it just something in the background? I, I, I have to say that this was my mother's choice, that it was something in the background. Because what I learned later was that it's not common for children to grow up in many families without knowing I'm this or I'm that. Okay. Uh, but at and some you, point, and you, did not, you did not know that when you were a young child. You didn't when I was a young child, at some point in 1990 when the war started, of course, you couldn't run away from it because it was on radio. It was everywhere. Yes. Eventually, the curiosity. And I would take my, 
my uh, parents' identity cards and they said Hutu, right? Because mm. it was in identity cards. But then my mother had this fear that I couldn't explain. And later on, I understood what it was. It was that my father's political profile in the 80s would mean that even though we would be called Hutus, we were deemed traitors by association because the chairman of the RPF, the invading rebellion, hmm. is uh, connected to my father's political profile. And so therefore, by association, my family, uh, Hutu, as, as it may be, were immediately labeled RPF. So, so, so you were screwed on two fronts. Um, if people did find out what you were, that wouldn't necessarily help you because your father's connections would come into play. And even though you didn't necessarily uh, think of this stuff much growing up, it became something other people would judge you by, whether you liked Absolutely. it or not. Absolutely. But now, much of what I'm telling you now, I understood much later mm. uh, by looking at my mother's behavior and what she was saying. And, 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 and so when it all started in 1994, she said, everybody stay home. She knew it was a possibility that uh, uh, we would be on the receiving end. In other words, uh, uh, as, as, the, as, as Tutsis who were de facto uh, assumed to be, um, well, they were immediately assumed to be uh, uh, RPF. Mm. Uh, so were Hutus who either didn't agree with the politics of the time or had a history with the RPF in some shape, way or form, like my father. And so even though he had died some four years earlier, it still didn't matter. And so when they came, the only thing they asked was, we want your identity card. And so they looked at it. And they read her name and my father's name, and they're like, "Yeah, this is this is the cockroach we are looking for." Oh my actually, God! You, the, they actually used the word, huh? Yes. Yeah. Wow. They, they said this is the cockroach we're looking for. Because so famously, father, famously, that was what they used to say on the on the on the radio, and they would they would label the enemies cockroaches, and it was largely Hutus calling Tutsis that, but in this case, it was them calling a fellow Hutu that because of what your father had been up to politically. That's the point. And, and that's, that's the sad. So the, 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 everybody was then labeled a cockroach if they were uh, uh, deemed or believed not to agree with the politics or they were Tutsis or somehow they opposed the, uh, the, the killings of Tutsis. So you were either a cockroach or a traitor. Those, those are... And there were there was a specific word for traitor as well. So when you are confronted with this, this this is the moment no parent wants their child to ever have to be a part of. This is what every parent fears from you know our earliest ancestors, that you're going to be othered, that you're going to be taken and separated from your people, your family, potentially your parents. And now your mother is told she's a, she's a cockroach, you're a cockroach. What happens next and what, did, what was her reaction? Because you must remember that. No, I remember very vividly. I was there. She was, she froze. It's like she literally stood there and froze. And the soldier said, come with us. Hmm. Uh, 
And my mother looked, uh, looked at him and, and, and said, where? And he didn't reply with words. He smacked, he basically slapped my mother in the face. <sighs> that was his. And I was standing there. I had never seen anybody raising a finger at my mother. It's, it's one of those things when you grow up as a, you grow up as a child. You don't even think is a possibility. And so that's, that was a shock for me. And, and I started crying and I, I, I took my mother's hand out of fear that the soldier will uh, keep hitting her. And I said, Ma, let's go, let's go. And so I pulled her. And, uh, uh, and, and so the soldiers, they, they, they took us around the house and, 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 and so we don't, we didn't actually know where we were going. I was in front. My mother followed and, and I'm pulling her by the arm. But of course, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just hoping that by her making the steps, they will stop beating her up. Uh, and so when we go to the gate, that's when we met the policeman who lived with us, who was coming back home. And he said, where are you going? We are at war. Uh, and so... My, my, my mother then said, they are, they, are, they are taking me. And the policeman said, who is taking you? My mother said, they are saying that I am a cockroach. And so those are the, that's the conversation. That's the last kind of coherent conversation I heard. The rest, it was, um, uh, then uh, the policeman was with two of his friends and they started fighting with these, these, these uh, soldiers. Um, and I remember the one thing that that, uh, that policeman said is, other people are at war and you are uh, uh, coming neighborhoods calling people in Yens, basically telling him there is something better for you to do. Um, but I didn't realize that it was going to get much worse. And, and he was, the policeman was the first to discharge his, uh, his gun, actually, very next to me. And... Uh, he, he, he shot in the, in, in the sky, he pointed it up and, and shot. Uh, he, they were all very agitated. And so, and it was, a, it was dark. And so in the scuffle, in the scuffle, a neighbor came and took me. But before he took me, I saw one of the soldiers uh, preparing to shoot my mother. She fell in the scuffle, she fell on the ground. And the soldier literally pointed a gun at her and the, this policeman jumped on his back. And that's when the neighbor took me away. Uh, that whole night, I, I was sure that I saw my mother being killed. Uh, and, 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 and so in the morning when I saw her, I cannot describe the relief. Uh, and so the bullet missed missed her by uh, by not very much because it burnt burnt the side of the eye and created a little wound here. Um, it was a burn wound, and 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 she she have part of the, the the face was swollen and still bleeding. Um, she was she had a little cloth and she was uh, drying it every now and again. Uh, you know. And, uh, 
Yeah, this is this so, is this is very. It, this is why I say it's hard to read your book because, yeah. you know, God willing, most of us won't have to go through something like this in our lives. And anyone who has been through it, <laughs> this is a this is such a, a a personal story, and and it must still be heart wrenching. I can even tell in the written word how emotional you must have been to to relive those experiences. It, it was, and, and Gareth, it's actually, how can I say this? When I realized how close we came to uh, being killed, not once, uh, several times, that's when there is just a, a, a swell of gratitude that, that, that I feel because... Um, there are actually moments. This one, yes, the policeman was there and he fought and there was a, he gave us a chance to survive. There are situations we were in, and some of them I describe in the book, where survival was sheer luck, was, was yeah. luck if you were in, in a crowd oh. and, and there's a machine gun shooting at that. So, so that's that gratitude, I think, that carries me and, and, and that actually got me to write about it because... Because it's a, it's a human experience. This too actually happens in our world, basically. That's what I'm saying. Well, you, you, you detail the other experiences and again, in a way that can only be described as witnessing and something which you've said you've learned, you've learned to do subsequent to the actual experience. Um, your, your, your book isn't just about the Rwandan genocide. I mean, Really, a, a large part of it is about your story afterwards, which I feel mm. is the most hopeful part of what all of this means. Um, yeah. You you prepared to flee to Canada. That didn't quite work out for you. And you ended up coming to South Africa. And, you know, we're going through a period in South Africa right now where there's a huge amount of xenophobia. There's a, there's a lot of intolerance. There's a lot of, uh, of nastiness mm. spreading around here. And I can't help thinking that you are probably one of the people who I would like to call a canary in the coal mine. When you hear and you see people behaving in a certain way, does it remind you of anything from that period of your life? Does it remind you of how humans can behave when they forget the humanity of other people? Sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes I see scenes in, that are so reminiscent of what I have seen before. And... Uh, and sometimes, Gareth, I I, 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 I pray that it it goes that far and no further. And when I mean by no further, I mean there is a point at which inciting and encouraging people to consider other people as other. There is a point where it can no longer be controlled. Uh, and, and South Africa has, has not arrived at that point yet. Uh, and even, you know, when we talk about this xenophobia, the, the, this uh, um, negative sentiment towards black foreigners, South Africa has not arrived at that point yet. But I fear that there are elements that show uh, uh, some movement towards that point where it goes beyond the rhetoric and, and, and just what some some people say to what 
a great part of the population believes and then they take action on it. So the the thing is, it's uh, it's a reality. And so if there is any kind of leadership that is needed, it is to actually manage that so that it never moves to the point where it is no longer possible to control it. Because you know, it gets to a point where even the very people who are inciting it distance themselves from it. They say, no, we, we didn't mean that. But, but it's, 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 it's not what you mean. <laughs> it's not what, it's what people believe. And when then it gets and becomes mob mentality and, and, and then they believe that they actually are doing it because they are doing something good. Uh, it, it, it's too late. You know, I'm, I, I'm reticent to tell so much of your story that people don't want to go and read more in the book because it, it is worth a read and there are there are a great many books for people to choose from these days but i think that the content of yours is especially compelling i do also like your story as i mentioned there's a hopefulness in in the the latter part of your story i mean you worked as a car guard in the city mm-hmm. center of Durban for a while uh, but you never really gave up on any of your dreams and here i am talking to you now as an author but the in-between story is is a story of triumph, not a story of, you know, this victim who fled the country of their birth. Uh, have you ever thought of Have you ever thought of of uh, rebuilding a life there in in Rwanda, or is that now something that's firmly in the past for you? Is it better to leave those doors closed? No, I have. I have. I actually dream of going back. Uh, uh, I mean, even now, as, as far away as I am in, in time and in space, I, I, I have firm connections to Rwanda, and sometimes I do participate at various levels in projects in Rwanda. So it's, it's, uh, it is certainly, uh, home is always home. And, and you know, like uh, I talk about this place called La Fraicheur, I certainly would like to stand in that intersection as a new human, having done all the processing that I have done, so I can say it is as it is. I, I dream of that moment. At the same time, um, you know, we've made the world so small in various ways. So where where you are is not necessarily uh doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot make a difference far away from wherever you are. So now I'm, I'm, I'm working in, in the entire continent. I've been to over 20 countries doing what I do and I love, and Rwanda is just one of them. So I'm grateful in that way. By the way, I, one of the reasons I love South Africa is because it definitely allows me to do that. Well, Again, I'm breezing past some of the details here, but you're, but you're no slouch. It's not as if you have been um, waiting to tell the story with, with nothing else going on. You are none less than a prestigious Mandela Rhodes Scholar. You have uh, been at university. You've studied between shifts. You've done incredible jobs. Some of the, the jobs that people in this country believe are beneath us. Um, you, nothing was beneath you. You, you, were, you were in survival mode for such a long time. Mm-hmm. What do you think those lessons of of having absolutely nothing, having no network, no connections, no ability to fall back on anything? It was all up to you. What did that teach you? Um, so <clears throat> the first thing is that 
even though I don't know what is coming tomorrow, and that's a fact, because tomorrow we, we don't really know, there is something that I can do about it, and that is I know what I can want about tomorrow, and therefore I make it my desire. That part I can play about tomorrow. And, and so when I was a car guard, I knew that one day I'm going to go to the university somewhere in South Africa. And uh, um, uh, there is, a, there is a, a street called Anton Lembede now, which used to be Smith Street. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to stand there as a car guard and, and look through the street. When you look through that street, you see on the other side of the city, there is a tower. And that tower was the Howard College of the, the University of Natal. And I used yes. to stare at it and I say, I have this jacket now, but that's where I belong. And I did it uh, every day when before I put my jacket on. Uh, so what I'm really trying to say is that um, one of the things that I learned is uh, uh, you need to know what you want from tomorrow. That part you can do about tomorrow, even though what will come, you don't know. But when it comes, then you can respond in a similar manner. Uh, and, and, and again, uh, really, why is it important? It's that it actually dictated how I behaved as a car guard. And I think I, I tell the story of how I refused to have a permanent place as a car guard. I was the floating car guard, the car guard who watched other people's places when they had something else to do other than watch cars that day. And why did I do that? Because it freed me. I worked when I wanted to because I had home affairs to deal with and I had universities to deal with. Otherwise, as a cargo with a place, it's a territorial business, so I had to stay there and guard it. And so I made my choices according to what I wanted tomorrow to look like. If there is one thing that I learned, that is it, actually. Wow. I mean, that's not, that's not a small thing. Uh, the, the, this is some, something that some of us never learn. Some of us learn too late. Um, it's hard not to give up, though, when nothing is going your way, right? And it's very hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a, a rewarding thing when you attain those goals. Uh, you know, the people who you lost, the people who are no longer around, the people who mm. you wish you could have had a chance to say goodbye to before you saw them for the last time in Rwanda. I'm sure they would have been very proud to hear the story. You've now started your own business. You're the founder and director of, of, of your own business. Tell us a bit about that business. Yeah, so it's a management consulting business. Uh, uh, we specialize in business development across, across actually where I work across the continent, particularly um, for social enterprises that aim to make uh, a difference uh, for for the, the the masses through a commercial model, uh, not mm-hmm. not handouts, but through a commercial model. So yes. what we, we we find ways of helping them to develop a commercial uh, uh, strategy that is going to help them gain access to the market in that way, and so adapt to the conditions of 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 the. Um, I don't like this term, but they call the bottom of the pyramid uh, uh, in 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 in, uh, in in the business in the environments where we're working. So that's what what I specialize in. I have one big client in in, in the U.S. Um, 
they have many projects that they implement on the African continent. It's called Witten and Roy Partnership. And so I'm one of the, uh, um, uh, my company, they use my company to, to, to execute some of the projects. And then I have some clients of my own as well that, uh, uh, that I help on the, on the continent. So that's, that's what I love doing, by the way, Gareth, yes. is, is I decided, okay, so, uh, I used to work for a bank and I thought, okay, and I, I want to <laughs> work where I can literally see that I'm changing people's lives. And every now and again, um, you know, when I travel from Senegal, or Chad or wherever I sleep and I know because it's part of my calculations that I do for my strategy sessions is I know how many people I'm actually going to make a difference to at least I can forecast that and say, I am a happy man because of the, uh, the difference I can make in, in that way. And you met our former president, Nelson Mandela, didn't you? Yes, uh, <laughs> on a few occasions. And uh, yeah, such, it was such a pleasure, such an amazing um, opportunity. Remember what, remember he said, what he said to you? Because, um, I mean, so many of these meetings are so quick, you don't really get to have a conversation. Yeah, I actually... <laughs> actually do in one of the occasions he asked me uh, he said oh so young man uh, I hear you are from Rwanda uh, who is uh, the president of your country of course I was surprised because I was I would have us you know and then thought okay he knows the person of my country so yeah. I told him the name and then he said oh it is still that guy <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and everybody in the room, of course, erupted into laughter. And and, uh, and, and it, but but that was him, right? It, it's like yes. he found a way to make you feel comfortable in a way that was unique to you, not not to everybody. So uh, and, and so that's that's the way he. And then he laughed. I have this photo where he's laughing at his own joke, and and so <laughs> it's a it's a. Uh, but Gareth, actually, speaking of Mandela, you know, one of the uh, one of the the things, and I know I was talking about business, and I was talking about uh, have a vision for tomorrow, etc. Mm. But one of the things I found is that all that really depends on how you perceive yourself. Um, and for a long time, I can tell you that. I perceived myself as less than or as inadequate because of the things I have lived. You know, I thought I was damaged uh, in, in some ways. And so whenever I had ambitions and there was difficulty, my immediate conclusion was, of course, you know, of course I, I am them. And so, and then I went through periods of depression and, and, and all of that. But it, it was the moment when I started realizing that, no, I am not damaged. I am. It's okay for me to have lived what I lived, but I am okay. And, and I am, and therefore I can actually become anything that I want to become because uh, I am not damaged. I'm a full uh, um, human being here. And then eventually I actually evolved to just say I am and feel complete without adding anything. And that's the kind of freedom that wow. uh, allowed me to, to be where I am, is to say I am, actually, I'm here. 
now, now what? What do I want for the future? And so one of the things that I appreciated about Mandela, I think, is because if there's something that, um, I mean, in, in so many ways, that helped him to be in jail for 27 years. And after the ordeal, he had just went, gone through. And he still come out and say what he said that we all know. I think there's a part of him that just couldn't be changed by anything you put around him or you put him through. And, 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 and for me, that's what I'm reaching for is there's a part of me that cannot be changed by anything, you know, war or, or there's the, just the essence of me. And if I was to be in touch with that, then it doesn't matter what the judgments are from other people. Then sometimes even doesn't matter what the judgments of my own are because I know I will deal with them tomorrow, but there is a part of me that does not change, that remains essentially me. And, and that is what I mean by I am. You know? So when I let this book go, I thought, I have no clue what this is going to become, but it's okay. It's more than okay, my friend. It's a beautiful <laughs> book. Really thank is. you so much, Gareth. Thank yeah, you. thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. And uh, I wish you all the best with this book. I wish you all the best with your business. Uh, you are a very inspiring human being. And I think there are a great many South Africans and, and Africans who will, who will take tremendous courage from this. So good luck to you. I mean, your book is tremendous. It's called Witnessing, P. Pacific Cavalera Uase. And you can find it in good stores. You can also order it on Amazon, I'm sure. Right, P.? You, uh, there's a Kindle version on Amazon and then yes. uh, ordering, you can order it on Take A Lot and uh, Graffiti Books okay. also carries it uh, and all yeah. the uh, major stores. Make sure you get, if you can't find it, then, uh, you know, send us an email. We'll send it on to him and then we'll find, we'll find you because this is worth the read. Thank you so much for your time today and thank you for your story. Such a pleasure, Gary. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. There he is, uh, a real uh, a, a champion, a, a man who's discovering uh, every day how uh, he already had all the tools he needed despite all the things he'd been through. It's just, it's an incredible story. It really is absolutely moving. P. Pacific, Cavalera, Uase. It's been a great pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, everybody.